On the afternoon of October 31st, 1926, a 52-year-old patient at Detroit's Grace Hospital passed away several days after suffering a ruptured appendix. Initially unwilling to seek treatment for his abdominal pain, the patient suffered severe cramps, cold sweats, and a fever of 104 degrees before eventually collapsing. He was rushed to the hospital where doctors performed emergency surgery, but the damage had already been done. He developed peritonitis, a bacterial infection in the abdominal lining, and it was simply too late. With his wife and his brothers at his side, the patient died at 1.26 p.m. on Halloween. For a man whose entire life had been based upon escape, there was no breaking free from death. You see, the patient's name was Eric Weiss, but the world knew him better as Harry, Harry Houdini. And now, the ever-ticking clock against which he had always triumphed had finally run out. Today, Halloween, nearly 100 years after his death, seems a timely occasion on which to share some of Houdini's story and his many visits to Western New York. Eric Weiss was a Hungarian-American illusionist and escape artist. Born in Budapest in 1874, his family moved to the United States when he was only four years old. They settled in Appleton, Wisconsin, where his father served as rabbi to the Zion Reformed Jewish Congregation. After losing his job in 1882, Rabbi Weiss moved to Milwaukee and later New York City. Eric began working at a young age to support his struggling family. Early on, he developed a fascination with magicians and circus performers. In fact, one of his first jobs, one which he got when he was only nine, was performing as a trapeze artist in a small circus. As his talents grew, he began developing shows and tricks of his own, performing with his brother Theo, better known as Dash. Eric developed talents as an escape artist, a performer able to break free from the bonds of handcuffs, chains, or ropes, often in the matter of only moments. Escape tricks were not a revelation in the 1880s and 90s. A touring group of magicians and self-proclaimed spiritualists known as the Davenport Brothers had performed escape acts of sorts as early as the 1860s. However, it was Eric who would make such illusions headline acts the world over. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Davenports originated in Buffalo, where their father worked as a policeman. In the early 1890s, young Eric adopted a stage name, Harry Houdini, inspired by famed French illusionist Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Eric simply added an I to his childhood hero's name to develop the famed moniker. 
a practice that would become commonplace among illusionists. Houdini's first name, Harry, was simply a respelling of Eric's nickname, Eri. Harry Houdini toured America's great theaters and stages for over three decades, and the theaters of Buffalo were no exception. Between 1893 and his death in 1926, he visited Buffalo at least 11 times. And with each visit came multiple performances at venues including Robinson's Musée Theater, the Wonderland Theater, and of course, Shays, which he visited most often. Now, in researching this episode, one of my goals was to document all of Houdini's visits to Western New York. Beginning with the year 1891, I attempted to find any mention of Houdini or any of his pseudonyms in local papers. This was time-consuming to say the least, because in that time he performed under the following names. Houdini, the brothers Houdini, Houdan, Harry Rayner, Cardo, Professor Murat, the great mystifier, the celebrated psychometric clairvoyant, Progea, the wild man of Mexico, and the Wizard of Shackles. He may have also visited while traveling with the Marco Company Magic Show or the American Gaiety Girls, a burlesque show in which he held 50% interest. The first mention of Houdini that I could find appeared in the September 13, 1893 edition of the Buffalo Courier newspaper. Hidden among larger ads was an announcement for upcoming vaudeville shows to be featured at Robinson's Musée Theater. Among the featured acts were the Three Jurdels, the Automatic Woman, and a number of other sideshow-style performers. Near the very bottom of the ad was a name that would become far greater than any other, Houdini. Now, to be more precise, the Houdini name at that time was part of a duo, the Brothers Houdini. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Harry Houdini did perform with one of his six brothers, Dash. However, at this point, the man he was performing with was not his real brother, but rather a man posing as his brother named Jacob Hyman. Well, it's likely Jacob, but it may have also been Jacob's brother, Joe. You see, Houdini had been performing together with the Hyman since 1891, and they seemed to be somewhat interchangeable. His real brother, Dash, had carved out his own career, performing as the great Hardeen. The newspaper billed the team as the principles of illusion and promised four shows per day. For 19-year-old Harry, this run of performances was his first in the Queen City, but would certainly not be his last. At the end of the 19th century, Buffalo was a booming industrial city. With a population of over a quarter million, its vaudeville stages were fertile ground for up-and-coming performers. Anyone with plans to make it big made Buffalo a frequent stop. For the next few years, Houdini used his ever-developing skills as a magician and escape artist to keep himself afloat financially before becoming more established after the turn of the century. He toured the country with different shows and under different names, performing an arsenal of acts, though his primary draw was a trick he called metamorphosis. In this main stage showstopper, Harry was tied inside of a sack and locked inside of a trunk. The trunk was then shielded by a curtain. Within seconds, the curtain was yanked back, revealing the person inside the trunk was no longer Harry, but his wife, Bess. Harry was a preeminent showman and understood that the audience needed to trust that the manacles, cuffs, and ropes within which he was to be bound weren't props. 
To earn this trust, he began inviting the audience to bring their own cuffs or ropes to his performances. Harry also knew how to drum up free publicity. He began visiting local police stations in the town to which he traveled, where he would invite officers to lock him up. Along with this spectacle came newspaper reports and with them, free advertising. Not only did they print the details of his escapes, they'd later print the inevitable account of the police department who were now forced to defend their facilities. While touring in the town of Woonsock at Rhode Island, he allowed officers to restrain him using six different pairs of cuffs at once, from which he escaped in under a minute. Harry brought this particular spectacle to Western New York on October 22, 1896. The Buffalo Commercial newspaper described the event under the headline, Magician Houdini gave headquarter detectives an exhibition that made them marvel. It read, There was a phenomenal exhibition of sleight of handwork in the office of Inspector Donovan at police headquarters this morning. The inspector has a pair of handcuffs on which he prides himself that no crook has ever been able to get off. Harry Houdini, a magician who was in the city this week, evidently heard of Inspector Donovan's wristlets and he visited the headquarters this morning for the purpose of demonstrating his skill. Mr. Donovan placed his handcuffs on Houdini's wrists, fastened them tightly, and then told the magician to remove them. Houdini went into Inspector Martin's office and in a few minutes emerged with the steel locks dangling from his fingers. Then, four pairs of handcuffs were placed around Houdini's wrists. Two shackles were placed on his legs and his arms and legs then fettered together. He was carried into Inspector Martin's room once again and within five minutes came out again with all the locks opened. And he was smiling. The officers then opened their eyes in wonderment. Then, another pair of handcuffs owned by Inspector Donovan, and which no key outside the one in Donovan's pocket fits, was placed on Houdini's hands, and he took them off in a jiffy. In his biography of Houdini, author Kenneth Silverman notes that Harry often chose police stations or jails as the scenes of these daring escapes because he aimed to align himself more with the growing popularity of crime and crime stoppers at the time as opposed to the onstage, formally-dressed magicians and spiritualists who attributed their escapes to helpers from beyond the grave. Spiritualism, which we'll revisit a bit later, began just 100 miles east of Buffalo in Hydesville, New York during the late 1840s. The phenomena, which involved the perceived communication with the dead, had taken a hold of millions around the world, for a time, Houdini himself worked among spiritualists, and he knew their tricks. He explained that, quote, Whenever any of these alleged spirit mediums tell you that they have supernatural aid in freeing themselves from handcuffs or rope and bonds, you may safely set them down as frauds. It was quite the opposite for Harry. He didn't attribute his skills to spirits, but rather his own physicality and ability to recognize the proper keys for various locks. When a news reporter in Buffalo asked him how he learned so much about locks, Harry responded, quote, from persistently meeting criminals in New York upon their release from prison and learning from them what they knew. We should take this with a grain of salt, however, as Harry's answers often changed from town to town. 
In April 1898, Harry returned to Western New York, appearing at the Wonderland Theater. Houdini headlines the advertisement, which notes that the mysterious man delights the crowd with his weird and startling entertainment. Other acts sharing the limelight that evening included Farina's trained rats and mice, demonstrations of the baby incubator, and lectures on vipers by Walter Ralston, who, a paper added, not only handles snakes, but also centipedes and tarantulas, a sort of Victorian Steve Irwin, as it were. According to the theater's manager, it was the most expensive show he'd ever booked. The following year, in 1899, Harry's career truly began to take off. He signed with vaudeville tycoon Martin Beck, whose nationwide connections had the escape artist performing in Kansas City, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Denver, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and of course, Buffalo. Upon the vaudevillian stages, of which there were over 2,000 across the nation, Houdini performed mind-boggling needle-swallowing routines and card tricks that left audiences bewildered. But, according to Harry himself, his handcuff tricks were the best. February 22, 1900 marked the first of Harry's many visits to Buffalo's Chase Theater. There, he amazed audiences working as an opening act for actress Verona Jarbo. And while in town, he again paid a visit to the local police. Stopping in at the number one police patrol barn, Houdini left officers perplexed as he freed himself from nine, yes, nine pairs of their own handcuffs. Harry, feeling that perhaps this challenge was maybe a bit elementary, then took things up a notch. Outside the police barn, with the winds of a snowstorm howling, Houdini calmly disrobed. Fully bare, police shackled him with five sets of cuffs on his hands and another four on his ankles. They then secured his hands to his ankles, and to be sure he wasn't hiding a key in his mouth or regurgitating them from inside of his stomach, police sealed his mouth with a muzzle. Harry then ducked behind a stall and exited just moments later, freed of all of his shackles. His performances in side chaise were just as riveting. The King of Handcuffs left audiences mesmerized. Some were even inspired to attempt escapes of their own. That certainly seems to be the case for city clerk Harry Kester. Houdini's performance had left Kester feeling encouraged, maybe even a little overconfident in his own magic skills. While at work the day following the performance, he asked his coworker John Price to lock him up in a pair of cuffs that he had brought in. He instructed Price to leave him in the room for a few minutes and quote, I'll have them snappers off. As it turns out, Price's memory wasn't what it once had been. He headed to another floor in City Hall and didn't return for several hours. When he finally did come back, he found a defeated Kester who stated that he didn't want to talk about it. Though his performances had earned him ever-increasing fame, Harry yearned for more. In 1900, he left America for Europe, where he would spend the next five years touring. Working out of London, he cemented his reputation as the world's premier escape artist, putting on a circuit of shows throughout major European cities. During his time abroad, the only taste of Houdini that Western New York would get was the occasional description of his acts that appeared in local papers. 
They read some of his most challenging overseas escapes, some of which took him more than an hour to accomplish. Meanwhile, in the States, lesser escape artists attempted to capitalize on Harry's absence, performing similar shows for audiences unable to see the master himself. In September of 1905, a European group known as the Vanos came to Buffalo appearing at the Lafayette Theater. Ads touted the act as surpassing the skills of the great Houdini. They even encouraged audience members to bring along cuffs from which the group won't be able to escape. Sound familiar? After a five-year absence, Harry finally returned to the Queen City in early December 1905 again performing at Shays Theater. The Buffalo Illustrated Times included a large photo of him. In it, Houdini's hunched over, his wrists and ankles tethered together with more than a dozen restraints. A caption below offers the public $1,000 if they can keep him contained, the equivalent of roughly $25,000 today. To gain the trust of his fans that his cuffs, cases, and containers were legitimate, Houdini once again invited the public to bring their own restraints. For this performance, he accepted a challenge brought by packing employees from the Jay and Adam Company, a well-known department store within the city. The challenge from the workers was as follows. Dear sir, we the undersigned express packers at Jay and Adam and Company have figured that the trunk trick you're doing is not genuine and is prepared. But hearing that you escaped from the cells at police headquarters, we would challenge you to allow us to make an ordinary packing case into which we rope you and nail you so that you cannot get out without demolishing the box. If you accept, let us know when to send the box and we will be at your disposal. The letter was then signed by four packing department employees. In response, Houdini not only accepted the challenge, but added a touch of showmanship. He wrote, I, Houdini, accept the above challenge for Friday, December 15th at Chase Theater. Everybody is invited to bring a hammer and nails and $500 will be paid to anyone who can discover any preparation whatsoever in the packing case. Two days later, Papers reported that the custom-made box had not only failed to contain Houdini, but not one single nail had been removed in his escape process. Now, of course, during his week-long run of shows, he made special appearances at both police headquarters as well as the Erie County Jail, where attempts to confine him left a new batch of officers befuddled. This time around, he not only escaped their shackles, but also a cell. The headline in the Buffalo Courier read, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. When reporters asked the desk sergeant what would happen if Houdini were to commit a felony and be sent to jail, the sergeant replied, quote, I'd probably go to state prison for releasing a prisoner, adding, no jury would believe what I just saw. Harry returned to Shays in late October 1906 and again in March of 1908, which papers billed as Houdini's final appearance for several seasons, adding, in this performance, he will escape from a galvanized iron can filled with water and secured by six padlocks. This trick, referred to as the milk can escape, became one of Harry's most well-known, 
the first in a series of increasingly dangerous stunts. You see, by the time of his return from Europe, his handcuffs escape had become old hat, and audiences had grown weary of the same old thing. In a way, he had become the victim of his own success. Audiences had seen his tricks before and were no longer satisfied. In addition, dozens of copycat acts had sprung up around the globe. Harry wasn't ignorant to the fact that his act had grown stale. Ticket sales had fallen and full theaters were becoming less common. The Milk Can Escape was one in a series of increasingly dangerous stunts undertaken by the magician. Crowds wanted to see Houdini's life in danger, and the master showman wouldn't disappoint. Just prior to submerging himself underwater, audience members were asked to take a deep breath and hold it for as long as they could. Slowly but surely, gasps for air could be heard one by one throughout the theater as Harry shook free of his shackles. In a never-ending personal quest to tempt death, Harry continually ramped up the danger in his stunts. For one escape, he hung suspended upside down from San Francisco's Hearst building, cuffed inside a straitjacket. In another, he submerged himself upside down in a water tank. And in perhaps his most daring feats, he, on numerous occasions, plummeted while manacled into rivers around the world, including Paris, Berlin, and Melbourne. The first of these jumps, as fate would have it, took place just a hop, skip, and a jump down the highway in Rochester, New York. There, on May 7, 1907, he plunged 100 feet from the Waylock Bridge into the waters of the Erie Canal. Now, while this wasn't among his most challenging bridge jumps, his leap from the Waylock is significant. According to sources, footage from the jump, which was captured by the Eastman Kodak Company, is the earliest known surviving footage of Houdini in action. And the footage is available on YouTube. Soon after his 1908 Shays performance, he headed overseas once more, this time booking 79 straight weeks of shows throughout Europe. Once returning stateside, he headed to Buffalo, which had now firmly established itself as a favorite stop of the famed performer. On October 18, 1911, he took to the stage at Shays again, this time accepting the challenge of four men from the local Siemens Union to tie him into an inescapable sea bag, covering his full body and secured with leather straps and buckles. For this particular trick, it took Houdini 15 minutes to free himself. The headline read, Houdini thrills audience with marvelous escape from sack. Though I feel like it should have been something more like Houdini escapes, obviously. After a five-year hiatus from the Queen City, he returned to Shays in October 1916, where, as was becoming commonplace, he accepted a unique escape challenge. This time, workers from Buffalo's Phoenix Brewery dared him to break free from a cask of beer. The cask, containing over 100 gallons of beer, would be built and sealed by employees of the brewery. During this run of shows, he would also escape from a punishment suit for criminals and also what papers referred to as the Chinese torture chamber. By 1916, Harry was in his 40s and had grown weary of performing on stage. That spring, he told a reporter, 
I've about reached my limit, adding, hereafter, I intend to work entirely with my brain. He would still perform, though, just not as often, and other activities began to consume his time. He started a film development company, starred in movies, and helped grow an organization called the Society of American Magicians. Founded in 1902, this organization's mission was to advance, elevate, and preserve magic as a performing art, to promote harmonious fellowship throughout the world of magic, and to maintain and improve ethical standards in the field of magic. Anyone who could perform sleight-of-hand work, whether professional or amateur, was invited to join. Harry served as president of the society from 1917 until his death in 1926, and worked to grow the organization. Under his leadership, chapters sprung up in Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and other American cities. The first chapter, however, was right here in Buffalo. On October 12, 1916, as a representative of the Society of American Magicians, Houdini met with the Buffalo Magicians Club at the city's Hotel Lafayette and persuaded them to join the larger national group. In 1920, Harry began down a different path, spiritualism, or more specifically, debunking and exposing so-called spiritualists who claimed they could communicate with the dead. Spiritualism was a system of belief or religious practice based on supposed communication with the spirits of the dead, especially through mediums. Gathered round tables in dark rooms, these mediums claim to speak to or channel the dead and from them deliver messages to the living. The origins of spiritualism lie right here in Western New York with the Fox Sisters in the late 1840s. Operating out of Rochester, New York, these three young girls claim to communicate with the deceased and deliver their messages through noises known as rappings. After gaining notoriety, the sisters went on tour, performing their act in front of increasingly large audiences and gaining support from people like newspaper publisher Horace Greeley, abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, and author James Fenimore Cooper. Little did these men know, nor their larger audiences, that the noises allegedly being made by the spirits as a sort of mystical Morse code were simply the sisters cracking joints in their feet under the table. Although the Fox sisters weren't all they were cracked up to be, spiritualism remained popular and experienced a resurgence during the early 20th century. According to Houdini biographer Kenneth Silverman, quote, during World War I and its aftermath, spiritualism boomed. Its promise of the afterlife appealed to many whose faith had been threatened by the bloody murdering in the trenches. Houdini, having performed as a medium on stage at times during the 1890s, knew the practice to be deceitful and predatory, preying upon the desperate and vulnerable. While on stage, Houdini had witnessed firsthand the power that spiritualist deceit had on members of the audience, and he vowed to never do it again. As he saw it, spiritualists were simply magicians gone bad. Therefore, who better to catch a good magician than the world's best? Harry knew all the tricks of the trade and knew a fraud when he saw one. He found joy in exposing alleged mediums, stating in an LA Times interview in 1924, 
It takes a flimflammer to catch a flimflammer. In 1922, Scientific American magazine announced a prize of $5,000 to any psychic or medium who could provide proof of ghosts. The publication assembled a small group of scientists and psychic experts who, together, would partake in seances within a controlled environment. Naturally, Houdini became a part of this team of investigators. Though Scientific American's team of investigators don't appear to have done any seances in Western New York, Buffalo did come up in a conversation between Harry and a supposed spirit at a seance in Boston. In August 1924, the team performed a thorough investigation of the supposed medium Mina Crandon, better known as Marjorie. Crandon had earned national fame with claims that she could communicate with her late brother Walter Stinson a quick-witted spirit who was known to converse with those at the table, and Walter took a keen interest in provoking Houdini. In one conversation between the two, Walter said, Houdini, you think you're smart, don't you? How much are they paying you for stopping phenomena here? To which Harry responded, I don't know what you're talking about. It's costing me $2,500 to be here. Where did you turn down a $2,500 contract in August, Walter asked. To which Harry answered, Buffalo. His work exposing spiritualists played heavily into his final visit to Buffalo in October of 1925. From the 19th through the 25th, he performed at Shays Tech Theater at the corner of Main and Edward Streets. There, he gave audiences a show which was twofold. The King of Handcuffs performed some of the tricks that fans had come to expect, but he would also spend a portion of the show discussing his work with mediums and exposing some of their common tactics. On Tuesday, October 20th, he lectured on spiritualism to a crowd of more than 700 people at Canisius College and gave a special performance in the offices of the Evening Times. After a matinee show the following day, he held a reception for ladies only, in which he would answer questions of a personal nature on spiritualism. Later, during his evening show, he escaped from a packing crate which had been specially designed by employees of Buffalo's Pierce Arrow Motor Car Company. On the 22nd, Harry visited the Meyer Motor Company showroom to see the human Studebaker, also known as the Talking Stude. There, perhaps he hoped that the phenomena of a talking car would demonstrate just how seriously he considered spiritualism and talking ghosts to be. According to the Buffalo Courier, the talking stude sings and plays any song you ask. It tells your age or the kind of watch you're wearing. It answers any question correctly. In fact, it's uncanny in its knowledge. The stude has a keen sense of humor and has kept vast crowds in an uproar all week. It's been called the funniest show in town. Houdini then performed for patients at Ferry Street's Children's Home for the Crippled and the Jay and Adam Memorial Hospital in Perrysburg. Ahead of his visits, he promised the children lots of candy and even some rabbits. Finally, on Saturday, October 24th, his last ever day in Buffalo, Houdini gave a free performance for the city's newspaper carriers. While growing up in Milwaukee, Harry had spent time as a paperboy, 
and held a special place for them in his heart. Children lined up outside the tech theater for the special morning performance, during which Harry performed nearly two dozen tricks. He began the show by transferring back and forth eight French coins from an ordinary water glass to a crystal cabinet suspended in midair. Later in the two-hour show, he made a lighted lamp disappear from one table and reappear on another on the opposite side of the stage. That evening, he took to the stage at the theater once more. Unbeknownst to him, or anyone else for that matter, this would be his final performance in Buffalo, a city to which he had so often traveled. There, in classic Houdini style, he escaped from a punishment suit provided by the Buffalo Police Department while under the supervision of Deputy Police Chief John Marnon. And with that final trick, Harry Houdini's performances in Buffalo had come to an abrupt end. There would have been many more, to be sure, were it not for the odd and terrible events that would unfold the following autumn. Events that would send him to that lonely Detroit hospital room. On October 22, 1926, Harry chatted in his dressing room with students of Montreal's McGill University, whom he invited backstage after a performance. Suffering a sore ankle from a mishap a few days earlier, Harry was resting on a sofa when a young man named J. Gordon Whitehead entered the room. Whitehead, also a student, asked Houdini about a claim the performer had made at times throughout his career that he could take a punch from anyone in the stomach and feel no effect. But this time, no degree of physical conditioning was going to save Harry. As he maneuvered himself from the sofa to stand, Whitehead unleashed a handful of powerful blows to his stomach, all before Harry was able to prepare himself. Houdini, visibly injured, downplayed the incident. The next day, however, he began experiencing stomach cramps, and his fever had risen to well over 100. While performing at Detroit's Garrick Theater on October 24th, he collapsed on stage following the closing curtain. He was rushed to Grace Hospital, where surgeons removed his appendix, which was found to have ruptured some days earlier. There, in room 401, the great Houdini passed away with his wife, Bess, and two of his brothers at his side. In the years since his death, many on Halloween have sought to contact Harry, including Bess, who tried and failed to do so for over a decade. To this day, however, neither medium nor psychic, seance nor Ouija board has been able to make contact with him in the afterlife. You can be sure, though, that tonight, many more will try. After all, if anyone could escape the great beyond, it would surely be the great Houdini. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Anthony Greco. I'd like to dedicate it to longtime museum supporter Steve Ulmer, who last year inspired my interest in this subject. I'd also like to thank my brother Jim for helping with the episode. A magician in his own right, he's been making me watch card tricks my entire life, making me want to disappear to another room of the house. 
To everyone listening, I hope you have a happy Halloween and stay safe. I'll be back soon with another tale from Western New York history. The Buffalo History Museum podcast is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the city of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul, and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by Amity Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. <laughs>